All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Welcome to part two of the forum today on Secrets of the Third Reich. And we're having a conversation with Dr. Joseph Farrell, who's a leading expert on the topic of which he has written countless books. Now, before picking up the threads from part one, we ought to elucidate that a brilliant academician and one of the world's handful professors in esoterics, Dr. Nicholas Goodrich Clark, of whom we spoke in part one, sadly passed away a few years ago. And that's certainly a scholarly loss. On a lighter note, now we're going to engage in a little scenario thinking and further elaborations on the Wunderwaffen or the less known aspects of the Third Reich. But first, since we're so lucky to have you on as a guest, I want to point out to any listeners who may be unfamiliar with you that uh, you're not only a productive researcher and author, but also a brilliant analyst of geopolitics. And I recommend people to check out his video blogs on his popular YouTube channel and see for yourself. Is this easy to find, Joseph? Uh, Well, yes and no. I get a lot of people on my website that send me articles in emails. I I get about 300 emails per day. Mm. And when I first started my website, I I was doing all the research myself. But now I'm getting so many emails that it takes most of my time just to go through them and sort them. So you don't do any research? Well, I, you don't. I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm flagging emails and sorting them into folders every day. And then I go back at the end of the week when I'm doing my blogs, kind of picking out patterns or trends that I'm noticing that people are concentrating on. And then I try and comment on them. When I first started this, I had more time to, to do individual research. But now it's just I've been so swamped that, you know, I'm a one man show. So yeah. <laughs> I don't have time to to but i guess you get some gems uh, in between oh yeah i do i really do and it's kind of interesting because uh i'm in a position to to notice patterns Hmm. uh of what you know what people are focused on and i also do these vid chats for my member subscribers on my website and they submit questions ahead of time they email me their questions or things they want me to come pardon me that they want me to comment on and sometimes, you know, there's no pattern at all. And other times it's astounding how there's, you know, there's a theme to what they want to comment on or questions they want to ask. And there's no coordination to this. Mm. I mean, there's no way that any of these people know each other, you know. <laughs> so, so it's kind of interesting. So from time to time, there's like a little zeitgeist going on. Yeah, there is. And uh, it's it's rather uncanny, you know. Uh, it's it's one of those group consciousness things, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So you can also enjoy Joseph's in-depth discussions recorded at the former Byte Show's online library. That's actually how I discovered you, Joseph. Actually, it was first by Richard Hoagland relating your work on Coast. Right. And then, back at that time, when searching for your name, it was mostly Byte Show that came up. Right. And such elaborations. And I must say, it's so sad that she passed away. 
Yeah, it is. Georgian, and we've been uh, partly inspired by the Byte Show, actually, to give an open mic like she did and let less-known researchers uh, spill it all out there. Right. It's such a brilliant usage of the internet. Yeah, she was she was very good. Okay, we'll uh, move on now to go through a few notes I did from part one before we take on the larger topics. Just a little fact-checking. You mentioned in part one that uh, Kurt Debus freed a leading scientist from SS prison, but you did not confirm his identity, but this was Richter. Right. Well, no, actually, I, I didn't say that he freed somebody. The record shows that he denounced somebody in 1942 to the Gestapo. Oh. And the gentleman's name that was denounced uh, to the Gestapo was Richard Kramer. Uh, and then there is a document that I reproduce in Reich, uh, pardon me, in Roswell and the Reich, that is from Abraham Ezel, who was the Reich Plenipotentiary for Atomic Research, mm. requesting or more or less demanding uh, to the Gestapo that Herr Kramer be released. This document appears on the letterhead of Reich Marshal uh, Goering. And, you know, that's, <laughs> that, that's, that's a bit of name dropping if there ever was any. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, uh, this document. It should open a door, shouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. it opens, it opens doors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, this document is the document that says that Kramer is essential for a certain project that they're researching. That is, uh, the project in German is stated to be mit Kriegsentscheidend, uh, with war decisiveness. That's where that term comes. It's, it appears only in this document. Uh, and this is the document that, uh, Witkowski refers to the, the project having war decisiveness. Mm. And many people, uh, take this as, you know, yet another sign that the Bell project is really nothing more than some aspect of their atomic bomb research. But when you read, when you look at what Kramer was doing for the Allgemeine Elektricitätsgesellschaft, which was where Davis was working and which is where Richter was working, what they were doing was, was plasma research. This, this had nothing to do with nuclear fission. It had everything to do with uh, trying to, to manipulate plasmas as Richter said later in his uh, interview with the U.S. Air Force, uh, this had to do with manipulation of plasma for fusion energy and ultimately zero-point energy. And when you go from there to what Richter tells the United States Air Force in 1954 when they interviewed him, uh, interviewed him secretly, as a matter of fact, mm. Uh, this is where Richter, you know, spells it all out, what they were up to. You know, this was this was not your ordinary plasma research project by any way, shape, or stretch of the imagination. And Richter, uh, Richter was there at the same time that this Kramer fellow was there and at the same time that Dr. Davis was there. And this is a huge clue because this is the indicator that whatever this war decisive project is, it is not the same thing as their atomic bomb. Okay. Mm. 
And the other thing, the other problem here, of course, is that that Davis goes on to to occupy a very important position within NASA uh, as the senior flight administrator at Cape Canaveral during the Apollo missions. So, in other words, this guy's not a rocket scientist, folks. This this is a huge clue that there's something else going on, uh, and he was involved in this in this project. He's the only. To be honest, uh, he's the only Bell scientist that I have discovered that came to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are all the indicators in the world that this project actually ended up in Argentina, and where it went from there uh, is anybody's guess. I, I simply don't know. Mm. And that's uh, that's a good topic to look more into in a post-war program. Oh yes, Richter, by the way, uh, when I had uh, Peter on the other day, he mentioned uh, Richter, who was one of the leaders of one of the Nazi polar expeditions. I think it may have been in thirty-eight or thirty-nine. Do you know if this is the same Richter? Could he? Be? No, it's not. No, okay. no. Uh, Captain Captain Richter was. Uh, a different fellow altogether, and I've never been able to verify if there's any family relationship between the two. Mm. Well, according to Levanda, this Richter survived the war, mm-hmm. and yes. uh, if he was central to whatever shenanigans going on down in the pole, he, he should be an essential post-war Nazi. Uh, yeah, there. The trouble with the Nazi Antarctic expedition, there's a lot of, as you know, there's a lot of mythology out there about it. Uh, that, to my, to my mind, is very, very questionable. Mm. Um, I don't believe, as I said, I think in the first part of our interview, I don't think that Antarctica was some sort of secret Nazi UFO research base. Uh, you know. The idea that they would have been able to construct something like that during the war, much less supply it with the relatively small German Navy, is, you know, to me, this is just outlandish. Um, People aren't thinking that keep repeating that mythology. That said, I don't think it's impossible that the Germans had something down there. They would have put weather stations down there to monitor weather for their U-boat and other naval activity. Mm. Uh, they probably had some sort of small uh, submarine base down there, perhaps for resupply. But to to construct a research center and build flying saucers and all that nonsense, no. <laughs> I, 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 well, I don't go there. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But uh, I'll press you a little since this is, uh, we, we can speculate a little at this part. And, uh, and since we, we're at the topic then, why would they carpet bomb Antarctica with Nazi swastikas before even Operation Barbarossa? Right. Why would they have all these expeditions what's their obsession with the south pole just basis some bigger plan and didn't you mention by the way i think actually it was in an interview with bicho that uh, they hired admiral bird to guide them no no they yes they they did contact admiral bird he went to germany uh for 
few uh, a couple of months as i recall just to kind of brief them on the conditions and so on oh so he didn't go with them no he did not go with them no no he he returned to the united states i think shortly before the outbreak of the war that expedition we need to remember uh if I remember correctly, Alvin, that expedition left Germany in late 1938. It returned to Germany, I think, sometime in, in April of 1939. Mm. Um, it took, I, I have the map of how it went to Antarctica. On the way back, it took this very weird zigzagging course all the way, you know, all over the Atlantic as if they were trying to avoid any sort of contact with, with anybody. Now, the interesting thing about this Antarctic expedition, and I'm not saying that there's nothing peculiar about it. There's, there's a lot of peculiar things about it, and, and the difficulty is finding anything out about it. Mm-hmm. But it had two sponsors within the Nazi hierarchy, and guess who, who they were? <laughs> I, I would assume Himmler. No, one of the sponsors was Rudolf Hess. Right, just as logical as Himmler. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and the other sponsor, believe it or not, was Hermann Goering. Wow. Now, you know, this is one of the oddest combinations, you know, uh, that there is. It's it's kind of, it's it's as strange of a political icon as, you know, Senator Robert Kennedy having at one time worked for Senator Joseph McCarthy in the United States. You know, it's mm. people just don't understand how strange these alliances are sometimes. But um, what's interesting to me is that Rudolf Hess, of course, was one of the Nazi hierarchs that was very interested in the esoteric and occult. Mm. And in fact, of all the Nazi leaders, with the exception of Himmler, he was probably the most uh, he was probably the most into all of those things. But then Hermann Goering, of course, had no time for it. You know, <laughs> he was he was you know he was nothing but a military man, pure and simple, and yeah. and um, he was also one of the smarter uh, Nazi leaders and. Uh, Hermann Goering's presence here, you know, this is the man that actually founded the Gestapo. This is the man that, you know, founded the Luftwaffe as a, as the modern service branch of third service branch of the German military. Um, this is this is the guy that was Hitler's designated successor after Rudolf Hess flew to England, and you know. It boggles the mind to think that Hermann Goering would have anything to do with something as non-military as an expedition to Antarctica. You know, why is this man sponsoring this expedition with Rudolf Hess? But there's only one conclusion. It has to be something hands-on practical, not just dreams and myths. Right, exactly. And, you know, to my mind, this means that that Goering saw some sort of military potential in Antarctica. And but Hess's presence here in this whole thing makes me think that perhaps, again, the Nazis were looking for something. Mm. Um, And again, we don't know exactly what they found because they went back to Germany. There were newsreels taken of their return. 
Goering had a medal struck to commemorate the expedition. I, I reproduced that medal in uh, Reich of the Black Sun. And then uh, you don't hear any more about it. <laughs> but, but in other words, they regarded it as a success, whatever it was. Yeah, they regarded it as a success, whatever it was. But then, you know, there's no details about it. Uh, what little details we do know are very, very strange. Uh, the Germans captured a bunch of penguins and uh, sea lions and so on and so forth. Mm. And, and brought them back to Germany to figure out how they could make, you know, nutritious meals out of what was available in Antarctica. So, in other words, hmm. their, their thinking was they're planning for some sort of permanent presence there hmm. uh, that they wouldn't. And, again, it's very telling that, that they're trying to figure out how to, you know, come up with a balanced diet based on what's available in Antarctica. So that's telling me that they want some sort of permanent presence there. And number two, they know it's going to be difficult to supply. Yeah. <laughs> you know? so, so it's very, very strange. The whole Antarctic uh, expedition, the, the Neuschwabenland uh, expedition, is, is, is very, very strange. There's, just, there's no two ways about it. Yeah, but uh, the fact that uh, it went black, uh, I mean, yes, exactly. omission is confirmation. Right. Uh, first, they are like uh, proud um, birds about this, and then right. uh, <laughs> suddenly it goes away. Suddenly it goes away. There are yeah. there are claims out there on the internet. You occasionally find internet supposed internet photos of what they found down there. I haven't been able to confirm or or deny the veracity of these things. Mm. But, uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. The fact that, you know, they come back, Goering strikes his medal, you have, a, you have a few minutes of, you know, Deutsche Wochenschau showing the newsreel of these guys returning, and, and then that's it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? so whatever happened, you know, to all that documentation is, is probably still buried somewhere, you know, and, and the full story is still yet to be told. Okay, so we don't know what they found, but we have an inkling of what they were looking for. Uh, at least two hypotheses comes to mind. One is the world ice theory, mm -hmm. that they may have found remnants of an antediluvian civilization. Right. And the other being, obviously, the hollow earth theory and some kind of entrance. Or at least, like, bird claim that there were zones of uh, hot. Yes, uh, hot zones where you could actually survive. Now, if we entertain these hypotheses, that's uh, an intention of the trip. And then they find something that has technological or practical impact. There can be an, any number of scenarios here, but if they look at this as a success... Uh, I think I smell a theme that you've touched upon in another series of books <laughs> concerning the old, old ancient times. Well, I, I'm not a subscriber to hollow earth theories or any of that. Um, I, I don't, you know, there's all of that wild stuff about Admiral Byrd. But um, yeah. I do, th it is said that the Nazi expedition did find, as you indicate, uh warm springs, hot springs, and so on, at various points around Antarctica, um, which is very interesting, and, and uh, there's, there's a bit of evidence suggesting something like that is going on down there that, that has been kept out of the public eye. Mm. 
So that's interesting. But the other thing I think you've touched on is not so much the world ice theory. I don't, again, I don't think that Herman Goering, you know, would have had any real interest in that idea. But you do have the idea percolating in some places at the time that Atlantis may have been, you know, the story is that it sank underneath water. Well, Antarctica, if you look at it in a certain sense, it's a whole continent that quite literally is submerged under a bunch of water, in this case, a bunch of ice. Mm. So, yeah, there's there's that suggestion. And um, I think perhaps maybe it's possible that they found some sort of evidence to confirm that theory. Uh, we simply don't know. I strongly suspect, uh, since we're on the subject, I have suspected for years that Hess being a part of this and being one of the co-sponsors of this expedition, that Hess would have known whatever it was that they found down there, which makes his subsequent flight to Great Britain in, in May of 1941 highly suspicious because there's no real reason why the British should have kept him, you know, all that time locked up in Spandau prison in, in Berlin. And the unusual thing here with the Hess case is that right towards the end of the Soviet era, and I find this very, very interesting, mm. it was always the Soviet Union that had blocked uh, those wanting, you know, petitioning for Hess's release. Mm. But Gorbachev, there are, there are indicators that Gorbachev, towards the end of the Soviet era, actually, actually did an about-face on Hess and said, yeah, we'll release him. So he, he tossed the ball back into Britain's court, and then Britain had to play the tough guy and say, no, we're not releasing Hess. Well, the question is why. Mm. Um, I've, I've strongly suspected, contrary to most of the theories out there, that Hess knew something about Antarctica, that he may have informed the British of some of it, and that the British kept this uh, a secret by keeping him in prison and then possibly subsequently murdering him. Um, you know, the idea of an 89 or 90-year-old, I forget how old he was when he supposedly oh, committed he was, suicide. He was over 90, I remember. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, I, think he, I think you're right. I think he was over 90. You know, the idea of this frail little old man... Uh, doing whatever it was that he was required to do, climbing up on tables and rigging a noose and hanging himself, uh, is rather um, rather difficult. There are forensic experts who said that uh, many of them believe it was a murder because right. he broke his throat bone or something that is not consistent with hanging but is consistent with strangling and like you say he was on british watch right. when it happened right this connection connecting it to to what happened right before is classical joseph uh, analytics i've never connected those two scenarios before my next question <laughs> was about Hess. Okay, never mind his post-war fate. That ought to be covered in a separate program dealing with that part of this timeline. But 
What's the real story behind her strange flight to England at the time of the Operation Barbarossa, which, for those who don't know, it was the invasion of Soviet? Well, yeah, this this is what bothers me, Alf, is that the people looking at the Hess murder, uh, and I do think it was a murder, mm. um, people looking at the Hess murder have pointed out, there was a British uh, physician by the name last name of Murphy, I think his first name was William uh, wrote a book called The Murder of Rudolf Hess. And in the book, he, you know, he was one of Hess's attending physicians. And Hess had a war wound from World War One uh, in his, I think it was the right side, I forget which side it was, right or left, but I think it was the right side, had a war wound from World War One where he had been shot. And, of course, you know, the Germans noted this wound, uh, medical leave and so on. And the guy in, in Spandau that Murphy examined showed no sign of having a war wound. Mm. So he came up with the idea that they substituted a double for Rudolf Hess that was so good that it managed to, to fool uh, Frau Hess and, and his son Rudiger. Wow. Um, but that's his theory. And then he goes on, like many people do with the Hess matter, and say, well, Hess had been given the entire order of battle of Operation Barbarossa and the basic operational plan by Hitler himself to take to the British and try to negotiate one last time a, a withdrawal of Britain from the war. Mm. And uh, as proof of his bona fides, gave Hess the order of battle to give to the British. Mm. Now, you know, I, 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 I simply don't, you know, I, I, I cannot wrap my head around Adolf Hitler or anybody else in the Nazi hierarchy giving to the British the entire order of battle, you know, for, for, for an invasion of the Soviet Union from the Arctic Circle to the Black Sea. I, I, I you know, my mind, my mind just doesn't wrap my, no. I, I can't wrap my mind around that. Um, to me, this is ludicrous. Um, you know, yeah, but can you wrap your mind around the fact that how primitive the whole operation was? He crash landed and was arrested by constables and Churchill wouldn't, wouldn't talk with him. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't sound like a professional diplomatic mission to me. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, if if that had been the case, Hitler would have had Hess fly to Sweden, made contact, preliminary contact with somebody, and you know, exactly. Mm. So Hess did something here that. Um, is completely a mystery. But I do think that the real reason, you know, let's forget about sharing Operation Barbarossa with the British. Mm. I think I think Hess brought with him something entirely different. Mm. And that it may have had, and I've thought this for many years, Alvin, uh, it may have had something to do with what the Nazi Antarctic expedition may have found. He, in other words, he may have brought with him enough information to tantalize the British in thinking that uh, there's something down there, perhaps technological, perhaps it was something he offered to share. Mm. And the British, you know, covered the whole thing up, uh, packed him away in Spandau, uh, 
and and that's the end of the story. So there's something going on in Antarctica that's a, a big, huge secret. This is why we still haven't heard to this day very many details about that Nazi expedition other than, you know, kooky theories about uh, UFO secret flying saucer research bases and so on and so forth. Yeah, and <clears throat> we're going to have uh, in the future an entire program on Antarctica because this is such a big mystery and we've had inputs now from both you and uh, Lavanda, so that's great. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we'll just live with this mystery of Hess for a little while more. We won't crack it tonight. <laughs> But it is a very interesting tidbit Joseph delivered here that Hess was one of the people in charge of the Antarctic expedition. They did find something, uh, most likely. Uh, at least we have the grounds to substantiate such a speculation. And right. then, oh, timing is everything. I mean, in another program, I'm going to ask you about 1947. Uh, uh-huh. Roswell, CIA, uh-huh. and Operation High Jump. <laughs> uh, three interesting things in 47. But in 19... Four, actually. What's the four? The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Ah, and, and, <laughs> and that's probably a link into your other series that I alluded to. I want to state it, and that's the series on... I guess you call it the Giza Death Star? Well, I, I call them the Nazi series and, and the ancient series. And the ancient series. And then yeah. I've got the bankers series. You know, there's, there's three basic themes, right? Okay. Mm. I really recommend the other series, too. Uh, we're going to have in the future programs on the ancient history. And we want to have you back for that, too, because your books have started to become like a standard in that part of literature, continuing the good work of, uh, what's his name, Uh, the first one who suggested the pyramids had a technological aspect to them. Oh, Christopher Dunn. Yes, yes. Chris Dunn, yeah. Uh, Okay, moving on then, I have a few other notes, but since we're on the more fancy stuff, let's continue flying high for a while. Now, the history of aerial flight in Central Europe. There's something there. Okay, the Zeppelins that, mm-hmm. uh, I guess, after the Hindenburg were decided to be unpractical. Right. Though that sounds a little strange to me. I mean, they always knew that weakness. Right. But uh, is it uh, some circumstantial evidence for there being uh, mysterious aircrafts prior to the classical UFO area. I mean, I've, oh, heard, yes. I've heard you talk about mysterious flying cigars. Oh, yes. Um, that's, oh, boy, that's a can of worms. Yeah. Um, in Roswell and the Reich, I talk about an episode that occurred in Scandinavia, in, in northern Sweden, and then northern Norway during the mid to late 1930s, just prior to the outbreak of the war. Um, there were these very strange craft that appeared over Sweden. The, the Royal Swedish Air Force actually pursued some of these things. People in northern Sweden and then uh, Norway up around um, Trondheim and Narvik and so on were seeing these very strange uh, <laughs> 
Lights? Well, uh, not just lights. They were contraptions. I don't know how else to describe them other than contraptions flying around. They looked like zeppelins with eight or nine propellers on them, you know, and they were zipping around the skies. The, the Swedish Air Force actually sent pursuit aircraft after these things uh, to try and chase them out of Swedish airspace. And the interesting thing that the Swedes uh, commissioned this study, I think it was either Sweden or, or uh, the uh, Norwegian uh, general staff, one of the two, commissioned this study of these craft and concluded that they were being produced by some sort of secret organization, okay? Hmm. Now, I don't want to go further into this subject. I'll give you the name of a fellow that I think you would be uh, interested to interview. His name is Walter Bosley. He's a good friend of mine. Um, Walter did a book called Friends from Sonora, in which he goes into the airship mystery. And he actually, in my opinion, he solves the mystery of NIMSA, this, this acronym that you find uh, in connection with the 19th century airship mystery, uh, which, again, if you know the lore, um, the, the lore is that there are Americans secretly experimenting with these things in conjunction with some sort of secret society based, guess where, in Germany mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. Now, when this starts happening, of course, Germany's not even unified. Uh, so he's thinking probably this is some sort of Prussian group. Mm -hmm. um, and he solves the acronym. But yes, I do think there's something going on with regard to these cigar-shaped Zeppelin-like aircraft, because these things were spotted in the United States all over during the late uh, 19th century. Mm, okay. uh, this is long uh, before World War One. Wow, before World War One. Yes, uh, that's yeah. early. Wow. Yeah, this this takes place in the United States from the 1850s up to the 1890s, mm. um, and there's always there's always this German group connected in the background to it. Mm. And so, you know, you, you've got another dot to connect there. But um, in Roswell and the Reich, I do point out that somebody's flying something in the skies over Scandinavia. Mm. And neither Oslo nor Stockholm know who it is, you know. And, and, and you know, they're not blaming Germany either, which is no. <laughs> another highly unusual thing. So um, they come to this conclusion that somebody's doing something secretly. Yeah. Uh, and that they're dealing with some sort of secret organization, mm. which is a very, you know, it's, it's a really interesting conclusion to come to, given the time that these sightings occur, because it would be very, it would have been very easy for both countries to blame, you know, either the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or the British, but they're not, <laughs> for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah, that is strange. It's very strange. Back then, uh, both governments weren't that developed when it comes to aerial... Uh, right. I don't know if it's connected to this, but there is uh, at least two alleged UFO crashes up here in Spitsbergen. Yes. Which, uh, one of them, I think, was before the war. Yes, I think you're right. Um, there was there was one before the war, and then there was either one toward the end of the war, Yeah. late 
late in the, part in of, the 40s at least so in 1944 i think mm. is is the date now that's interesting too <laughs> because and i don't write about this in any of my books al but um the uh the german battleship Tirpitz in 1944 one of the rare sorties that it ever made was a sortie to Spitsbergen hmm. to, you know, blast the British weather station <laughs> off the map, which it did, of course, you know, uh, you can imagine being poor British soldiers waking up when they've got 16, 15 inch shells falling. On them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> so, so the Tirpitz sailed up there ostensibly to blow this weather station off the map, and um, which it did, of course, in very short order. But um, I've always suspected, again, you know, given given those strange stories of, of UFO crashes on Spitsbergen, that maybe there was something else going on. The you know the idea that the Germans would take their one remaining uh, super battleship and. <laughs> use it simply to blow a weather station off the map mm. uh you know to me that what were they monitoring up there that they weren't yeah, supposed exactly. to yeah, yeah exactly and then you got you know. uh, for some weird reason norway who didn't want any bases they didn't want nuclear not even power plants let alone weapons right. and managed to keep uh, united states away even though they were pressing and pressing and pressing after the war. But from out of nowhere, I'll tell you, uh, it's just in the recent 10 to 20 years that Norwegian are aware of this, but out of nowhere, they decide to found a harp station up here in Norway. Yeah, I scared. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, uh, they don't even hide the fact that Americans have a deep tentacle into that station. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so, and also, maybe this is a loose dot to connect, but uh, still to this day, not only is all these things classified, but you're hard pressed to actually get to one of the poles. There's a lot of military bases stopping you, yeah. and no one is passing the poles. Uh, they classify all pictures of the poles, the few that are out there. Uh, seems to suggest a hollow earth uh, situation or something that even in google maps they censor arctic yes. and antarctic yeah and so this just keeps fueling any speculation we can have about the poles right and then there's the ufo aspect to everything how many reports don't we have about uh, ufo activities in these waters so something is going on to be sure something something is yes yeah, something is definitely going on um to me it's very suspicious that you have all of the activity in antarctica that has been occasionally it'll surface in the news and then it'll drop right off the radar yeah, yeah. uh you have the you have the lake uh, vostok business with the russians there you have uh these very, very strange claims about the Nazis. You have, uh, you, you just have so much weird things. Yeah, going I, I remember once in Coast, uh, Hoagland yes. made a big story about uh, something they found, but that went to totally black. Yeah, and yeah. it was never followed up on. Well, there were people. There were people coming out, being brought out of Antarctica during that period that had become suddenly and grievously ill yeah that had that had to be flown out from antarctica to new zealand in the dead of winter mm. 
um, to to and we don't know what happened to them. Uh, you know, they were taken to New Zealand, and and then again the story stops. I find it very interesting because in Roswell and the Reich, at the very end of the book, I put in that book some seismology charts that were taken of readings in Antarctica. And I again, I don't know how true they are. There's no way to document where this or how this guy, he, he is in Germany, got a hold of these seismic charts. But I thought they were so unusual I had to include them. Mm. Because what they show are just extraordinarily wild, long-wave activity hmm. in Antarctica. And to, to, to compare what you see, I actually put a seismograph in there of a nuclear explosion, which is this little wiggle, you know, on the line. Hmm. But you look at you look at what's going on with the Antarctic, these alleged Antarctic uh, seismographs, and and the lines are all over the chart. Um, these are just huge, extraordinarily large, long waves that are going on at various times down there. And I thought, well, okay, there is obviously something going on down there, and this may or may not be further collaboration. If if it's genuine, then clearly somebody is doing something to cause all these long waves because they are not normal. Um, <laughs> they're, they're just not normal geophysical processes at all. Mm. So, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other here. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, I wish we could spend more time on this point, but I see from the time we have to move on to okay. the next topic. And, uh, well, it's in a related matter. We hear so much, and I think it began from neo-Nazi lore, that there was this UFO crash that the Nazis found. And obviously mm -hmm. the mainstream uh, assumption then is exotic UFO technology retrieved, which was back-engineered right. uh, at any point prior to the end of the war. Uh, but uh, we do know that there were several phenomenons that can substantiate something in this regard. We have the phenomenon of the Foo Fighters. Right. We have the Victor Schauberger produced uh, vehicle called the Repussin. We have the mm -hmm. alleged Rudolf Schiever made a Pandemonde. According right. to an article in the renowned Der Spiegel, right. of course we have the Hanebu, right. and then we have the Vril, also called the Jäger. Now, could you elaborate and clear up some of this mess? Okay, I I am not a subscriber to the Hanebu and Vril mythos, and I go I go into great length in another book called Saucers, Swastikas, and Psyops as to why I think this is a story that was planted during the post-war period by the neo-Nazis, or, or uh, to me, there's no real neo-Nazis. They're just all yeah, plain old, yeah, ordinary, yeah. you know, just, it's the same group. If it quacks know? like a duck, yeah. If it quacks <laughs> like a duck, it's a Nazi, you know. <laughs> um, this group, after the war, put out these stories uh, about Nazi field propulsion, flying saucers, and so on, in conjunction with the CIA. I think this mm. is a bit of clever disinformation mm. to try to get, you know, the Russians thinking, well, we have a heck of a lot of stuff uh, that you guys don't know about. Um, 
I think that's what it is. The other problem here with the whole crashed saucer reverse engineering thing, and I have to be very honest, this is one of those things, this is one of those, this is one of those things that just sends me into, uh, tailspins of frustration because in my books, what I try to do, I never, I never reference that story because number one, there's just not very good evidence for it. Mm. And number two, the other problem is, is I'm trying to reverse engineer on the basis of actual human physics and published engineering papers and ideas at that time. So in other words, I don't think we need extraterrestrials or crash flying saucers to explain what the Nazis were up to. Mm. Whatever it was, they were certainly thinking outside the box. But I think that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that they had begun this thinking before the outbreak of the war. Um, and and I, I try to point people in my various books to where to look to find the actual paper trail, so to speak, of ideas that would have led them to research some of these things. like the Yeah, Bell. yeah, like Gerlach and Richter's work in the 30s. Gerlach mm. and Richter. Uh, Gerlach is a huge figure in this um, because, you know, he was an internationally respected and renowned physicist. He was conducting experiments. He was in contact with other prominent physicists of of the day. Uh, His interest was gravity and magnetism and so on and so forth. Yeah, but what about Skivers, Pandemonda, Schauberger's repulsion? Is that those flying saucers are jet-powered. They're not field propulsion saucers. Mm. So in other words, there's no no provenance for Hanabu and and Vril. Uh, there's There's no data set that you can look at that says, well, this is the physics thinking that they may have had in their heads all you see are some blurry photos. You see some diagrams and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. But you don't have, as you do with the bell, you don't have a detailed data set that allows you to reverse engineer a possible process of reasoning behind these things. They just come out of nowhere. Uh, and, you know, they well, come out. Well, I have to say, to be the devil's lawyer here, in Schauberger's case, there is uh, an entire. A system actually published, but the problem, and I admit it too, is that it was very hard to convert his layman's terms, yes. poetic terms, over to modern scientific language. Yes. But there, there is something in Schauberger's case. Well, yeah, I, I cover Schauberger uh, at some length in Reich of the Black Sun, but again, you're dealing with craft that ultimately are some sort of of jet turbine, although of a very different nature than the ones we usually think of. Mm. Also in Schauberger's case. Yes, but these these again are not uh, electrogravitic field propulsion craft. This is the key. Mm. Uh, The only indicator that is there in the record that allows you a data set that has enough detail to sort of reverse engineer the possible physics behind it and what they may have been thinking is the bell. Mm. Hanabu and Vril are, again, in my opinion, and I'm going to be very firm on this, these are post-war disinformation stories that have been put out that keep getting repeated. And it kind of bothers me because nobody sits down to do the detailed research to explain, okay, well, if this is true, then 
let's look for the data set that can and and try to reverse engineer the physics that may have been going on in their head. Mm. Uh, this this is my big problem with those things. So no, I'm not a believer in those. Um, for me, the kernel of the of the Nazi UFO mythos is the bell. But again, the bell is not reported to do anything other than simply levitate. Mm. In other words, it's not a UFO darting and, gun. And kill people. And kill people, right. As a boy effect. Right, mm. exactly. So something has So in other words, that makes more sense to me in, in the sense that it would have been certainly a breakthrough, but it wouldn't have been sufficient to allow them to immediately construct these flying saucers to zip off to the moon and Mars. Uh, <laughs> you know, this, this is my problem. With that. That's a leap. I get it. Yeah. yeah, and even even if there was some kind of prototypes for that, as long as they were jet propulsion, it's no big deal because it's right. uh, still not exotic enough to alter. Yeah, the balance. It's, it, they're they're exotic, but they're not exotic enough to be you know extraterrestrial or anything like that. Now, that said, it's very interesting in Roswell and the Reich. I go into the U.S. Air Force's 1947 intelligence collection memorandum that was authored by Brigadier General Shulgin. I really suspect that there's a hidden author to this memorandum by the name of Alfred Lading, but that's another story for another interview. But um, in that memorandum, it's very clear. If you read it carefully, uh, this is a memorandum that gets cited all the time by the Roswell uh, extraterrestrial dogmatists mm. uh, that you know this memo came out after Roswell and this is proof that they knew that they were dealing with extraterrestrials blah 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 well if you read the memorandum it says no such thing what it says is that if you read it carefully they they realize they're dealing with jet propelled flying saucers mm. And the general comes right out and says, well, you know, we need to find out where the Horton brothers are. <laughs> you know? So in other words, that's, that's the brothers who made the, the flying Bruno. wing. Yeah, right. The flying wing, mm. you know, and for an American Air Force general, in other words, to be thinking in terms of jet propulsion and then to drop the name of the Horton brothers into this document tells you right there that they're more suspicious of German origins for whatever they are dealing with. And particularly in the aftermath of Roswell, they're more suspicious of that mm. than they are of extraterrestrials. Um, I, I go into great length examining that document in Roswell and the Reich. It, it's a rather long chapter because there's a genuine version of that document out there. And there's a fake version of that document out there. Mm. And even in the fake one, you know, the name of the Horton brothers is still squatting right there in the middle of the document. So if you're dealing even in the fake document with what you think is extraterrestrial, why would you be bothering about the Horton brothers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, as I recall it, they were taken over by the Americans or how did that go? No, that was after the war. After the we, war. We, managed, we managed to get our hands on some of the actual flying wings. Mm -hmm. But the Horton brothers themselves, no, because guess where they were? They were in, in South America, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that's a dot. Uh, there, that's place. another, yeah, big yeah. go, ding, ding, ding. Mm, and, yeah. you know, you've got the Hortons down there. You've got Kurt Tonk. 
down there uh, designing these Delta Wing jet aircraft for Juan Perón. I, I put a picture of one of those in the book. So yeah, you know, you're dealing you're dealing with all these myths out there, and you know, I'm scrambling to to do actual research and connect dots, and then people come along and say, well, couldn't all of this have been just a crash flying saucer yeah. that the Nazis... Well, what you're really saying when you when you make those kinds of arguments is you're dismissing the pursuit of the actual story. Mm. Of course, uh, one of your big uh, horses have been to substantiate that there actually was a natural development of uh, accessible science prior to the war to explain these things. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So what about the Foo Fighters then? Can they be connected to the Nazis somehow? Yes, I think so. Um, again, this I cover that in detail in, in Roswell and the Reich. Mm. The normal story that we hear from, let's, let's say, the ufology crowd is that the Foo Fighters, n number one, never showed any hostile activity. Number two, since they appeared in both theaters of the war, they couldn't possibly have had anything to do with the Germans. But again, my research method is you have to look at case-by-case -case basis. Certainly, there are Foo Fighters appearing in the Pacific Theater of the War, and certainly this would seem to indicate that there's more than one possible source to the phenomenon. But there are a number of cases of Foo Fighter activity that are clearly occurring in contexts that suggest that at least part of the origin for the phenomenon is some sort of German research. And I give a couple of, of examples in the book where you have the appearance of Foo Fighters chasing British uh, photo reconnaissance aircraft out of France. The light appears on the ground and darts up toward them and performs a bunch of hostile maneuvers and basically chasing these British aircraft away. Mm. In another case, uh, during one of the Schweinfurt raids, I believe it was, uh, the daytime raids during uh, 1943, a bunch of these Foo Fighters appear to disrupt the formation of American bombers just prior to the arrival of German fighters. Mm. So again, you know, the context is very suggestive here that these things are working uncannily in concert with the Luftwaffe on certain occasions and in ways to, to disrupt allied um, air formations. So there are indicators of these things being at least to some extent German. We don't know exactly what they were. There's all sorts of theories and speculations out there. Um, but, you know, to me, the evidence is clear that something was going on with these things and that there is some sort of German connection to them. Mm. Well, I think there also was some war articles in America about them where they speculated yes. that it could be a secret German weapon. Right. There were little column filler articles in the New York Times in 1944 um, and so on and so forth. The interesting thing is, is that one of the American generals in charge of researching that particular phenomenon mm -hmm. during the war mm -hmm. was General Nathan Twining. Well, if you know the history, Twining ends up after the war 
being the head of the Air Force Air Technical Intelligence Command hmm. based out of Wright-Patterson Airfield in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> he, is, he is the American general that was ordered to New Mexico during the Roswell incident hmm. uh, away from his normal schedule to go to New Mexico and do something. So, in other words, there, there are these indicators that suggest that something's going on with the Roswell incident when you put all the facts together that indicates something German is going on here, not something extraterrestrial. You know, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I know that I know that there's people out there that just think I'm nuts um, because they've they've imbibed the Roswell extraterrestrial dogma so long. Yeah, but um, I, I ask I ask these people to, to at least give my research, and it's research, folks. Give it a chance. <clears throat> Well, <laughs> so I think we should follow Occam's razor, and that's actually what you're doing here, both when it comes to substantiating a human technology evolution and in the case of uh, brushing the unnecessary exotic dust off the Foo Fighters. Yeah, the Foo Fighter question is is a, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying all Foo Fighters are secret German research. Um, I think, again, you have to, you have to look at each, each occurrence on a case-by-case -case basis rather than coming to a sweeping generalization one way or the other. This is this is the problem in so much research dealing with topics like this, and and I'm I'm just not in that either camp. Um, okay, but but if you look at the cases, then as you have done, uh, are there many cases uh, where it seems they have been a nuisance for the Germans too? Oh yes, there are cases of the Luftwaffe uh, pilots reporting these things as well. However, yeah, but they were out of the loop anyway. They were out of the loop. This is precisely the problem, because I am not aware of any cases from the Luftwaffe where these things are performing actions that could be considered provocative or hostile. Mm, exactly. In other words, in other words, the German pilots are reporting things that they're seeing, but that's about it. Um, I'm not saying that there are not such cases. I'm simply saying I'm not aware of them. Right. Important distinction. But the Allies, didn't they report it as uh, an attack or a threat? No. They, they, reported, um, they reported these incidents in context, as I said before, where the activity of these things could either be considered provocative or hostile or in contexts that suggest some sort of German origin for them. Mm. And this, this, you have to be very careful here because I'm trying to steer as closely to the actual reports as I can rather than the language that was used. Now, that said, there are indicators that General Twining and his staff put out the word that, you know, don't, don't say that these are German, just simply describe the action, describe the event, hmm. but don't make any conclusions. In other words, that's telling me right there that the, the U.S. Uh, Army Air Force at the time uh, 
is thinking in terms of a German origin, but they don't want this to get out and perhaps uh, ruin morale or things like that. Mm. Um, you know, which again, if you're if you're uh, an American general and you're sending your unescorted bombers into Germany during the day, yeah, you're going to be concerned about keeping morale up. Mm. <laughs> you know? so. Sure, and also as a signal to the people itself who read the news. Uh, right, exactly. Mm. Interesting. Well, uh, I guess uh, the jury is out on the Foo Fighters then, but uh, the German link here is certainly interesting. And now it's getting obvious that we should also include your book, uh, Roswell and the Reich, as a source material for what we're talking about here, since you're kind right. of touching up on it there. That's an excellent and very exciting book, people, where Joseph goes more in-depth into some of these things. Already in your book, Reich of the Black Sun, it's like this book outlines what's to come in yes. your research in this line. Because right. you do touch upon many of the things there, too. And uh, I would point out that in Joseph's research in this book, he lays out the case very orderly, very easy to follow, where you distinguish between, you know, if you state some facts, you say that if they are alleged or if they are confirmed. And uh, you just uh, wrap up uh, many of the hitherto unclear dots in a way that paints a grand picture that's so yeah. captivating. Yeah, Roswell and the Reich, I call Roswell and the Reich the book that ufology loves to ignore. <laughs> Uh, because because when it came out, the silence from the ufology crowd was deafening. Mm. Uh, I did hear one or two people at certain conferences referring to it. They were almost lynched. Wow. Um, and then shortly after it came out, a number of other books came out that were not very well researched. One of them became a bestseller. Let me guess. The other book was an alien extraterrestrial explanation. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Course. And mm. again... It was an effort to, in my opinion, to uh, put Roswell back on the extraterrestrial side of the equation and all based on insider testimony and mm. stuff like this. Well, you know, if you read my books, folks, you'll discover I do not use insider testimony, anonymous sources or any of that. I use documents that you can access. I, I build an argued case. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Roswell... Uh, my scenario is this, and, and I'm just going to toss it out there for people to think about. Um, assume for the sake of argument that what crashed in New Mexico was something Nazi. And you're the U.S. Air Force, and you go out and you pick it up and you bring it back to the air base there at Roswell. And you have a number of people looking at all of this stuff including some of the Nazi scientists mm. and the U S air force doesn't know where it's coming from. In other words, they know that it's not part of any American black project. So what does this mean? Well, it means that there's somebody out there in the world that is continuing to research all of these very exotic advanced technologies that the Nazis were researching during World War II. Mm -hmm. Now, 
again, let's go back to the Shulgin Memorandum. This is a memorandum that ufology itself often cites in connection with the Roswell incident. So in other words, I'm relying on the case that the Roswell people have already made, that this is a document that is in response to that incident. But when you examine the document, again, as I said, over and over, it's telling you this is jet propulsion, and we want to know where the Horton brothers are. So, in other words, the U.S. Air Force is telling you right there that it suspects there's a Nazi connection to this. So, let's stop and think what this means. This means that two years after the end of the war and the, and the German capitulation, there are still people out there in the world researching independently all of this Nazi stuff. Mm is that going to cause the United States Air Force to panic? <laughs> you you bet you it is because number 1 they don't know where it's coming from. They hit the panic button, we need to find out real fast where it's coming from and number 2 they can't go public with this and say oh by the way folks uh, there's still Nazis out there. We don't know where they are. We don't know what they're up to, but they're violating our airspace with impunity. <laughs> okay, so, so what do you do? My guess is that they concocted a deliberate obfuscation of the data to, first of all, direct people into thinking this is extraterrestrial with the whole recovered flying saucer mythos that put out was put out by that U.S. Army Airfield in 1947, mm. and then a mere hours later, they reverse the story and say, no, it was just a crashed weather balloon, our intelligence officer at the only atom bomb uh, squadron in the United States Air Force at the time can't tell the difference between a flying saucer and a weather balloon. Mm. So in other words, they obfuscate the data into two extreme poles to have people avoid looking at what the data set itself suggests. Mm -hmm. And the data set itself suggests, like it or not, uh, that the initial Air Force suspicion was that this was something that had to do with wartime German technology. That's the bottom mm -hmm. line. This is... Uh it's not just a bottom line, it's a Pandora's box. It is a huge, yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> it links the whole question of what we're putting light on here, which is the war technology, to the question of the which way the world developed after the war right. in sequence. Absolutely. And a big question there is the connection between Nazis and the USA and who controls who. But we'll yep. we try to we'll try to find out about that later in another show. Uh, retracting back a little then to what's on the table today and if you bear with me I have a longer reasoning here ending up in a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. In uh, Asses Brotherhood of the Bell, you reference an ancient myth about how there in Mercury mm -hmm. is power to move through space. And it's mm -hmm. so interesting to see how Mercury pops up in relation to this borderline physics. Mm -hmm. And also, as you referenced in other books, such as The Philosopher's Stone and The Secrets of the Unified Field, the alchemy was a component to right. this, which makes sense. Right. 
considering that mercury in traditional alchemy is related to the mineral work, the great work, and also considering how Germany was one of Europe's alchemical headquarters before the Nazis destroyed everything. Right. There's many famous modern alchemists rising out of Germany, like Albert Reid, also known in esoteric circles as Frater Albertus. Mm-hmm. He made many practical alchemical publishings. The same with Manfred Junius, to name a few. Now, everything suggests that the Nazis read the ancient, symbolic and obscure texts in the light of language of modern science, as you've pointed out in your books. And since esoteric text concerns themselves with the essential principles of nature, uh-huh. uh, this becomes possible even if the text in question doesn't intend to sow themselves because of the correspondence principle, as above, so below, which is basically proven valid by modern science who now say the world is holographic. Mm -hmm. So let's take, for instance, the fact that you and others always state that when it comes to this kinds of physics, you've got rotations, rotations, rotations. Rotations, And that's always associated to technology regarding free energy and anti-gravity. Now, uh, to complete my reasoning here, in tantric, alchemical, and especially Pythagorean language, there's two antagonistic forces, plus and minus, in Taoism, called yin and yang. Mm -hmm. And these interact. Now, if you spin them in opposite direction, Mm -hmm. according to the philosophy, you will create polar effects, since one of them is masculine, the other feminine polarization. Mm-hmm. So, and the horizontal one is the axis where at one end uh, it's what the ancient called fire, uh-huh. which is masculine, and the other end being water, feminine. One may say this represents time. And the vertical one is air, where you have masculine at top and uh, earth, uh-huh. feminine at bottom, uh-huh. which can be associated to space. Uh-huh. So when you make these two forces spin in opposite direction, they equal each other out, so to speak, and you get the third condition, which we can only begin to speculate what may be. And we have some suggestions from history, like you've written about, so we know there's something. Now, my two questions. One, given that chronos means time, and it was Uh stated in part one of our program uh, that one of the projects for the bell was Project Chronos, so could this have time machine effects. And the other question, since this is recent technology, as you pointed out, how easily can it be reproduced uh, or back-engineered by ordinary folks? I'm not suggesting black ops. Is there anything Mm -hmm. suggesting that this can cheaply and effectively be replicated by people interested in doing so? Well, let's take question one first. Um, the, The presence within the bell of this serum called Serum 525 is, in my estimation, it's described as a heavy, viscous, maroon-like kind of jelly, metallic, liquid metal. Mm. Now, in the Philosopher's Stone, I make a case that, and again, it's a highly speculative case, but I make a case that this may have been some sort of mercury and some other substance, in my opinion, possibly thorium, Hmm. And it's an and it's an oxide, hence the maroon color. All right. Um, now this substance was spun inside the bell in in opposite directions. What this will do is it will cohere the plane of rotation 
uh, as much as possible. And I also believe they, that it was electrically rotated as well. So we have mechanical and electrical rotation, counter-rotation. So what you have is a plasma-creating substance. Mercury is good for plasma under extreme high voltage. Again, we find that in the bell. Mm. So you have plasma in counter-rotation. Now, right there, you have differential rotation. What, what you have is a technology that's trying to create a miniature sun, mm. all right? Mm. Because what's the sun? It's a rotating ball of plasma. And because the plasma is rotating at different speeds at different places on the sun's surface, you have a differential rotation. So that right there tells me that they are, they are number one, playing as, as much as possible, as much as they can with the technology of the day. They're playing with gravity, all right? Mm -hmm. When you play with gravity, you're playing with time. Now, this, let's go back to this substance for a moment. Because, pardon me, because I think they are dealing with thorium, which is a radioactive isotope. Uh, I, in fact, I think it was probably thorium-229 isomer uh, for reasons I get into in Philosopher's Stone. Uh, thorium has, like all radioactive substances, a very specific decay rate, radioactive decay and they are using this substance, therefore, not only as the fuel for the bell, they're also using it as a measuring device to test how much, if any, time dilation they're getting by measuring the radioactive decay rate from this substance. Because if it changes under those conditions of extreme rotation and extreme electrostatic stress, then they have a very rudimentary time machine. Now, mm. when I say this, please, I, I get this all the time. Well, couldn't the bell have been some sort of time travel machine or a portal machine? Well, again, the effects most likely are going to be rather minimal, but they're going to be... Um, they're going to be enough that they're measurable, mm -hmm. all right? So you couple this with the idea that it may have levitated, then, yeah, you've got some sort of gravitational time effect that's being produced by this device. Again, um, I prefer to call it time dilation rather than a time machine per se, simply because I don't want people to get the idea, well, okay, they're stepping into this device, and they're popping out in the year 2075. No, that's not what they're doing because, number one, you can't enter this thing. It'll kill you. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think it's highly possible that they're getting some sort of time effect out of the machine. Now, let's deal with your second question. Um, how easy would this technology be to reproduce? In other words, could somebody do this in their garage? Well, <laughs> Probably not. Um, again, if you're dealing with thorium-229 isomer, you're going to have to have special equipment, you know, for handling radioactive isotopes. Mm. Uh, this device required gobs of, of high-voltage direct current electricity. So, you know, you can't do a bell full-size bell experiment in your garage. You might be able to do simple proof-of-concept experiments. Yes, I think that's possible. Mm. Um, 
but let's look at it from another point of view. You certainly have here a high-tech device that would be relatively difficult to engineer, but it's much easier to engineer than a hydrogen bomb. Mm. So in other words, relatively speaking, it's easier to engineer. The cost-to-benefit ratio would be potentially much larger, and it would require less, much less infrastructure than, say, trying to build a hydrogen bomb, uh, because you'd have to have extremely precise machining for hydrogen bombs. You'd have to have uh, isotope enrichment, you know, you'd have to have the ability to produce and, and collect and assemble a lot of, of lithium deuteride and so on and so on, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, this is all relative. Um, but you're talking about a weapons perspective now. Yeah, I'm talking about a weapons perspective, but what I'm trying to get at is, is on the one hand, people aren't going to be able to build this in their garage, but on the other hand, it's not going to take a huge infrastructure in the same sense that it would take to build th thermonuclear weapons. You see the difference? Mm. You're still going to you're still going to have to have an infrastructure to do it, but it's going to be of a very different nature. It will be uh, much more possible to solve the the power requirements uh, over time you know the bell was the bell was tested near a location where there was uh, an electrical power plant simply in my estimation because they needed so much direct current electricity that they couldn't provide it all with with battery technology of the day but you know technology is advanced so maybe you could do this now uh, using some of the new capacitor technology that we have that they didn't have back in the 1940s. Mm. So, again, the difficulty is relative here. Yeah. <laughs> Do you see it coming out of Hutchinson's garage, for instance, <laughs> if he was given the task? <laughs> uh, well, Hutchinson isn't doing exactly the same sort of thing that they're doing with the Bell. However, Hutchinson is producing uh, electromagnetic effects yeah including levitation and, and material alteration by uh, microwave interferometry. Microwaves. That's, that's very, very clear. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, you, you have only to look at some of the videos on his effect on YouTube to see if you scale this up, uh, you know, power it up, you've, you've got a weapons potential absolutely there. And you've also got a field propulsion uh, technology potential there. Mm. But I guess thorium complicates it a little. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting enough, in Norway, the most right-wing party there, Norway is a um, social democratic state, so they're not that powerful. But they suggested thorium-based nuclear power. And there yes. is now a Norwegian thorium initiative called Thor Energy, in, <laughs> incidentally. Yeah that is testing to see if this really is a clean and more effective way to produce energy. So that's interesting. Yeah, there have always been plans, uh, and, and in my opinion, they're very credible, to use thorium-based reactors rather than uranium and plutonium. Uh, and there are people that even think that you can use thorium for you know, nuclear weapons. Um, that remains to be seen, but uh, 
and there are people out there that explain the bell as as being a project for thorium based reactors and, and so on and so forth um and and insofar the data sets that they do examine they make a good case my problem with that whole case however is they're not looking at the entire data set uh, that Vitkovsky has put out. Um, and they make a number of other claims that I don't think are exactly true. But, uh, but yeah, when you're doing this sort of research, you always have to understand that, you know, you're speculating on, on things. So, right. you know. Okay, moving on then. For the end of this part, I think we should get back down to Earth and to some of the stuff mentioned in part one. Now. Mm-hmm. Back to Kammerlerstab. Uh, you mentioned it was reduplicated by the USA. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but what about the original Kammerlerstab? Uh, I know this belongs to the Nazi International. When we have you back mm-hmm. on a program about all this, but as a little indicator right now, how how sure can we be that uh, the original survived? Do can we substantiate an autonomous survival of the real Kammerlerstab? Well, yes, I think you can. Uh, Kamler dies. Uh, he he was a very a very accomplished man in a wicked sort of way. Uh, Kamler survived, having died no less than four times, <laughs> all under you know all under different different circumstances. Mm. Uh, I strongly suspect, unlike most people, I strongly suspect that Kamler made his way ultimately to South America. Mm. Um, because, again, Richter's project in Argentina has so many data points that connect it directly to the way I've outlined the bell, all right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so something survives there in Argentina. After Perón goes public with the project, which I don't think he did with the blessing and permission or knowledge of his hidden Nazi friends, um, Richter behaves in such a crazy way that Perón pulls the project. So what that tells me is, is the Nazis deliberately shut it down and may have moved it elsewhere. We don't know where. Um, but what I'm getting at here is that the command structure of the Kammlerstab, with its security, which was in the hands of uh, Heinrich Miller, the head of the Gestapo at the time, uh, Miller himself goes missing at the end of the war. And then, of course, Martin Bormann, who was the financial genius, in my estimation, he also made it out of Nazi Germany. So, in other words, you've got right there the security, the technology and management, and with Bormann, the finance. Mm. So you've got a command structure there that absolutely survives the war. Um I, I don't want to go into too many details here because I cover this in the new book that's just now at the publisher. It's called The Third Way. Wow. Um, yeah, The Third Way. Its subtitle is The Nazi International, The European Union, and Corporate Fascism. Excellent. You're back to that topic. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, I'm attempting to bring it up to date. Um, I do see, I do see, without giving many details away, I see two things. I see the survival of some sort of uh, command structure 
hiding within large corporations, most of them German. Um, and I also see the survival of uh, German war aims beginning in World War I, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. uh, continuing through World War II, uh, and worked out in detail by the Nazis for a European Union in World War II. Uh, the details between their plans for a European Union and what exists now hmm. are not only palpable, but frightening. Hmm. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. And then, of course, you've got uh, you've got the Nazi interest in, in high technology and exotic physics. And I'm not even going to tell you what I think that is embodied. No, in. but um, we'll, we'll squeeze you for that information on the show concerning that. <laughs> 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 and this is one of the reasons we want to have many researchers on to focus upon this period of time, because uh -huh. uh, what we've been taught in school all over the world is the oh, yeah. uh, dumbed down version of uh, well, it's it's not only dumbed down, but in many cases, it's just patently false. Yes, falsification, oh. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. But, um, okay, now you mentioned in part one that you did cover Hitler's escape in mm -hmm. Nazi International. I was perplexed because I couldn't remember it, and it's been years since I read. Uh, I think Nazi International was the first book I read by you. Mm -hmm. But I checked it out in our <laughs> long break. And remembered now when I reviewed it that indeed both Hitler and Brown's fate were referenced. But although you did entertain the possibility that they got out, they, mm -hmm. I would say, they had a rather minor role compared to your point about right. who actually escaped and how organized it was. Right. So I take it that Hitler wasn't central to the survival of the Kammerstab and the Nazi International, and certainly not one uh, person with such a useful role as Bormann for finance, Gerlach for right. science, Miller and Galen for intelligence, etc. Right. Well, in, in the Nazi International, I kind of take the view, Al, that Hitler was valuable to the post-war organization as a symbol, as a symbol. Mm. Of, of its continuity. Mm. Uh, but the real, you know, even even on any conventional analysis of the power structure within the Third Reich after 1942 up to the conclusion of the war, uh, Hitler is basically running his war and running it increasingly badly. Uh, and Bormann is actually the fellow running the day-to-day -day internal affairs, if you will, of, of the Third Reich. And Bormann is, to my mind, uh, the real mastermind. And by, by late 1945, he's, he's the guy that's ultimately really in charge. Um, Hitler, Hitler would have been valuable to him simply uh, as, as a continuity of a symbol. Uh, and I even entertained the hypothesis that, you know, some people think Ava Brown made it out with Hitler. I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of um, in a quandary about that, and I'll tell you why. Bormann is having to orchestrate the escape of some very high-ranking people. Himself, Heinrich Miller, uh, Hans Kammler, and all these people. In other words, Bormann is, is wanting to get as many people out that can preserve the command structure as he can. Mm. 
Hitler certainly would have been essential as a symbol of continuity in that command structure. Ava Brown, however, would have been just another body that he didn't really need to smuggle out. Yeah, taking space. Yeah, taking up space. Mm. So, you know, we we hatch the whole story of, of the suicides and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of 50-50 on whether or not she made it out. I, I tend to think probably not. Hmm. Hmm. Um, according to, I, I forgot his name right now, a brilliant author who wrote Grey Wolf. Uh, yes. Yeah. According to him, the Borman got out with over $20 billion. And that's oh, just what's on the books. And what many right. people don't know is that there was a huge German, uh, I, I think like four million Germans in Argentina yes. today. Yeah. So it would be a natural second home sure. for the Kamlestad. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You mentioned in part one uh, von Schwentz. Who was that uh, again? Uh, Friedrich von Schwentz. Mm-hmm. He was um, the fellow that was connected to the big German counterfeiting operation during right. the war, counterfeiting the, the British pound sterling notes. Friedrich von Schwendt was the guy that was responsible for converting this supply of counterfeit money into other currency right. to provide uh, liquid capital yeah you elaborated on this in part one yes but, but did yes. he survive the war oh yes absolutely he survived huh. and went, he survived and went to uh, peru huh. yes and that, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's ah. a link to the black economy huh absolutely absolutely right. you know why why would you need someone like this to escape germany well mm. that tells me right there is they're running a big counterfeiting operation of some sort after the war yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I have found no proof of this at all, but I do suspect that his presence in South America after the war is yet another indicator that there's some sort of hidden system of finance in the global system that ha is is trafficking in in fraudulent securities. Uh, you know, they've they've got to fund this somehow. And as you said, Grey Wolf, uh, you know, their take on the escape is different than mine. But you know, they're they're arguing a case and speculating on on other aspects of the data. Mm. And um, Bormann, you know, just as you say, had twenty billion dollars in 1945 dollars, mm. incidentally. Yeah. <laughs> at his, you know, at his disposal, Jeez. and that's just what we know about publicly. So, in other words, folks, this means that there's a huge war chest for this post-war organization. This is not just a group of Nazis hiding out in no. the Amazon jungle, Certainly. you know, trying to hide from the Mossad. Mm -hmm. This is an organization, as I've said in my books, that is an extraterritorial state. Mm. Uh, and it's it's hiding in the woodwork of several host countries. This is the problem. Uh, and in the new book, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of sweeten the pot a little bit with the new book coming out. I point out again in the new book that the use of radical Islam has been part of the German uh, policy since World War One. So, in other words, it looks to me like this big war on terror 
is the public story being put out, but that the real war here may be with this Nazi international. Mm. This is such a bomb. This, this is a bomb. This is more yes. than a show. But the whole question we'll get back to when we can talk about this is who's really in charge also at our side because there are so many <laughs> undercover ties to the Nazis in <laughs> our among our people, supposedly. Yes. So yes. it's frightening, but it's exciting too. It is. But back to uh, a point you did elaborate a little on that I think could stand a little more scrutiny. Patton, we mentioned, yes. he had some informers, and I'm thinking uh, controlled informers, insiders instead of moles, because since he found the gold, which is why I referenced it, and weapons, and this was just, a, as you also pointed out, just a fraction of what they had. Yes. Could it be as part of a deal? Could he be killed to keep it uh, oh, secret? Yes. I don't know, maybe the Dulles brothers. What is certain is that if Kamlerstab was so secure and had no moles, patents had to be manipulated when he went back and forth to all these strange routes they were putting yes. him out in. What's your take on this? I think definitely. If you look at the operational history of, of the American Third Army, beginning with the landings in France and then on up to the end of the war, mm. what is very clear is that General Patton is his, the, the spearheads of his combat commands are making beelines on the map to all the nerve centers of Kamler's empire, including to his headquarters at Pilsen inside hmm. the inside the Skoda works. All right. Hmm. So Patton's troops are the ones that actually liberate Pilsen, not the Soviets. Uh, it's Patton's troops that make it to the Joachimsthal in, in uh, Thuringen in Germany. So you have, in my estimation, he is being guided by some secret intelligence. This is very clear. This, this is not coincidence, in other words. Now, he may not have been aware of why the, he was being ordered to take these places. But once his combat commands enter these places, he's going to be getting field intelligence reports on what they're finding. Mm. So of all of the commanders within the Western Allied military command structure, General Patton would have been the one in the best position to know exactly what the Nazis were up to. And therefore, yes, as you speculate, he would have been immediately a target, not only from the the Nazi group, which he was rather friendly to, actually. Mm. Oh. Mm. oh, yeah, Patton. Patton was not. Uh, Patton was not on board with the post-war American denazification program at all. Mm. Uh, you know, he wanted Soviet as the enemy. Yeah, he. Uh, you know, let's turn the Germans right back around and, and march back into the Soviet Union with them. You know, mm. <laughs> so interesting that they choose him then. Yeah. And Patton, you know, Patton, uh, the other thing people need to remember was Patton was independently wealthy. And there are indicators he may have been considering a, a bid for the presidency. Wow. So in other words, he was also probably a target for this group within the American power structure 
kind of headquartered in and around Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street, you know, the famous firm with the Dulles brothers and so on. Uh, he may have been targeted by that group simply, you know, to, to keep his mouth shut. You know, he had a notoriously big mouth. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think that Patton was targeted. But unlike most people, I don't think he was targeted by the Soviets, which is what most people think. I think he was targeted because he's in the unique position to have known some pretty detailed information about this exotic Nazi technology, the research that was going on, and he would have been in a position also to notice the the dirty deals that were being made with with Nazi intelligence and some of the post-war American uh, power hierarchy. So Patton, you know, Patton is uniquely a threat in in this respect. Hmm. Okay. That's a dot tied up. I only have uh, one, maybe two questions left here then, and we'll wrap it up. Could we say that Himmler was out of the loop because, ah, I guess we could call him more of a high priest for the Nazi cult, (laughs) hence uh, more useful as a symbol during the reign, but in a flight situation, unpractical and risky burden. And I would guess the same goes with Goebbels. He too was expendable. And uh, uh, they, the only reach they didn't contribute uh, that they included was Hitler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say the same goes for Goering. He too was out, perhaps because Bormann removed competition, because they yes, needed absolutely. some people to take the fall, the blame, right? Right, right. Well, Himmler. Let's look at let's look at Himmler, um, because you raise a very good point here. Himmler would have been just another body he was you know he was such a crackpot let's let's be honest um (laughs) that to someone of bormann's turn of mind or hans kammler or heinrich miller himmler just would have been a burden um so yeah i think himmler it's very clear that bormann and kammler at the end of the war just kind of squeeze him out in fact in in nick cook's book the hunt for zero point he points out that Himmler had sent a telegram to Kammler asking for the use of a yeah, truck. Yeah, you mentioned now, a tr- uh, Yeah, a truck was code for one of these gigantic German transcontinental aircraft, you know, the Junkers 290s and 390s, mm. which at that time, at the end of the war, Kammler had absolute control of. And Kammler simply wrote back and said, no, <laughs> you can't have it. <laughs> so in other words, Kammler is being protected by somebody within the Nazi hierarchy. And the person that turned over the control of those aircraft to him was, guess who? Admiral. Martin Bormann. Oh, it was yeah. Bormann. It was Bormann directly. So in other words, all, all the threads lead back to Martin Bormann. Uh, so, <coughs> pardon me. I think, yeah, Himmler is a liability. Goering is a liability, and again, if you read the the internal power politics that's taking place as as the Reich is collapsing, it's very clear that Bormann is manipulating Himmler and Goering out of power. Mm. Uh, what about Goebbels? He was Goebbels. Goebbels is different because Goebbels, uh, in the new book, I point out that many of the members of Goebbels' propaganda ministry, not Goebbels himself, but his propaganda ministry, assume positions of 
high importance within the post-war government of, uh. of, uh, of Chancellor Adenauer. Mm. So in other words, yeah, Goebbels' propaganda ministry becomes a crucial nexus for some of the people that are going to be put into crucial positions of power within uh, Adenauer's post-war government, including, uh, I might add, I believe it was either, um, I think it was Kurt Georg, uh, Georg Kiesinger, uh, the third uh, West German chancellor, that had been at one time a high official within Goebbels' propaganda ministry. Mm. So in other words, you look at the post-war leadership of West Germany and you find it's it's baffling. You find Nazis almost under every rock. Mm. <laughs> um, it's you know it's it's not the picture we've been told to believe. You know? uh, and we know they don't <laughs> grow natural in nature. So no, we, they, they don't grow naturally in nature. No. <laughs> I see. Well, uh, I had a question here, but I think we'll get back to it when we cover the Nazi diaspora about the German atom bombs and how it may have uh, related to the American yes. Manhattan Project. But we'll get back to that. It's such a big question. The last question then, and uh, you don't have to go too much in depth on this because we're a little pressed for time here, but what about the Bush connections, Prescott and mm -hmm. Walker uh, mm -hmm. and these guys to the Nazi network, uh, finance, etc.? Well, it's well known. Uh, it's, it's something of a, of a uh, I don't know, a, a theme in American alternative literature and in the American alternative community, that Prescott Bush was well-connected to Fritz Thiessen uh, and had contributed through his union bank in New York, had contributed funds to Thiessen, which in turn were rooted into Hitler's campaigns. Now, the union bank and trust company was seized by the assets were frozen and seized by the Roosevelt administration under the trading with the enemies act because even after the war had started there were still these financial transactions taking place between Union Bank and, and Fritz Thiessen so there's always been this Bush Thiessen Hitler connection but I don't make too I don't make nearly as much out of it as most people do because Fritz Thiessen himself, um, after the war had begun, became very, very disillusioned with Hitler mm. and ended up, you know, in for a period of time, ended up actually in a concentration camp. Now, that said, there's something very odd going on inside of Nazi Germany during the war. And I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to spill the most sensational detail of them all, which it will be in the new book. Mm -hmm. But it does appear, I'll just say this, it does appear that the Nazis throughout the war sheep-dipped certain people mm -hmm. deliberately, tarring them with the brush of being anti-Hitler or anti-Nazi so that they could be then used after the war. Ah, That's clever. Oh, it's extremely clever. That's so Goebbels. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, yeah, it's so Goebbels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the people that is very, I think it's very clear that they did this was Hjalmar Schacht, mm. uh, you know, the Reichsbank 
president. Yeah, he was he was freed. He was freed, mm. you know. And Shacht is one of the most slippery characters I think he'll ever meet. <laughs> um, I think it's possible that they did this with Fritz Thiessen very early on. Uh, I, I, and I, again, I want to go into details here, but there's a whopper squatting right in the middle of this that, um, I'm, I, I wish I could, I wish I could tell you, but I don't want to give any details until the new book is actually on the pallet being shipped out because. And again, the new book is called. It's called The Third Way, and the subtitle is, uh, The European Union, the Nazi International, and Corporate Fascism. Hmm. So you were revisiting this subject yep. finally. How many books, uh, some of them are overlapping, but how many would you say you have now in the Nazi series? Uh, let's see. There's Reich of the Black Sun, SS Brotherhood of the Bell, Secrets of the Unified Field, Philosopher's Stone, Nazi International, Saucer Swastikas and Psyops, Roswell and the Reich, and LBJ and the Conspiracy to Kill Kennedy. So that's eight. And and this one will make nine. Hmm. Hmm. You need them all, people, if you want to delve into all aspects here. But the books we've been covering today, Reich of the Black Sun, Nazi Secret Weapons and the Cold War Allied Legion, and SS Brotherhood of the Bell, NASA's Nazis, JFK and Magic 12, they, both of these cover some of the stuff that you'll see elaborated on later. And next time we'll also go back to Nazi International, the Nazis' poster plan to control finance, conflict, physics and space. We've been covering that uh, partly today too, but since it's the whole point of the Nazi survival, we have to get back to that book too. And it was rather early in this avalanche of uh, Nazi escape books that came uh, a few years ago and yeah. still is coming out. You were rather early out with that one. Yeah. So, three excellent books. We can wrap it up now, then. And, uh, again, recommend uh, people to check out Joseph's books. When you read them, you'll see that if you hear a lot of outrageous uh, <laughs> statements made today, check the facts. And uh, Joseph goes in so many details that we just can't cover in a radio show. And you'll see, you'll see from the documentation, from the reasoning given, it's really, really impressive. So I uh, have to thank you for your time a well, lot. It's been as interesting as it was educated. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me back, Al. Oh, anytime, anytime. That uh, concludes the forum for today. Check in next time when we're going to take it a step further down the timeline and examine the incredible evidence for a well-organized Nazi escape. Before signing off, let me just remind you that we are in need of sponsors to keep going, so if you can spare a fistful of dollars, please donate. Meanwhile, I remain your sincere host, Al, together with the rest of the forum team. Be seeing you. number one.